Welcome to the Shock Your Potential podcast with your host, Michael Sherlock. We all have potential, but sometimes we need inspiration to get us to our peak performance. Whether you are starting out in your career, ready to move up the corporate ladder, or taking the leap into entrepreneurship, Michael's guests provide powerful tools and resources to shock your potential. Shock Your Potential is a global professional development training company committed to your unique journey. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com and download our free Shock Your Potential app today. Listen in to today's expert. Thank you for joining us again on another episode of Shock Your Potential. And I am your host, Michael Sherlock. All month long in July, we're talking to true leadership powerhouses. And the reason we're doing this is to make sure that we're all focused on how to be a transitioning leader. You might have thought that you were challenged in the last year and a half. Guess what? There's more to come in this world. <laughs> I want to make sure we're ready for it. And so my guest today has some really great experiences in businesses that you're going to know right off by their name. And I can't wait to uh, pick his brain a little bit more to know more about him. So Marcus Kirsch, is, uh, he's a Royal College of Art alumni, so he's got a creative side of him, and an ex-MIT Media Lab European researcher. He's worked as a transformation, service design, and innovation specialist for over 20 years. And he has project experience with companies that you may or may not know some of these names, like British Telecom, GlaxoSmithKline, Kraft, McDonald's, Nationwide Nissan, Science Museum, P&G, Telecom Italia, and many others. And he believes that we need, and I love this because I believe it myself, a new narrative and mindset and a way of working to align ourselves, not just with what we think we need to do, but with what society needs today, which is so in line with this theme, is understanding what's going on in our world and making sure as leaders, we're adapting to it. And when he's not hard at work, he is um, what he calls, quote, a mediocre indoor climber, a movie nerd, and a maker. And uh, he currently resides in London and The Wicked Company is his first book. And for those of you who are watching uh, also the video version of this is there's quite a number of uh, boards hanging on the wall behind him. And I know there's some stories with those, so I'm sure we'll get into it. So Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Michael. Exciting to be here. <laughs> I love it. So tell me a little bit more about you and your business and how you help clients to shock their potential. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned before, my background is sort of in art, innovation and tech. And I've moved over the last 20 years from working quite, you know, getting my hands dirty and working on projects like that for a variety of clients and companies to getting quite more interested in building the context for that kind of work to be able to happen. So when you work in innovation or in, create, in the creative area, you see that a lot of ideas never come to fruition. And sometimes that has to do with the organization itself. Mm -hmm. So be it the leadership or be it the team structure, organizational structure, the support, wherever you get. It's like growing, you know, uh, rare flowers. They need the right bed. And so I started to focus quite on that. So more on the people aspect of things and what it actually needs for organizations to thrive and create more value. So I moved mm -hmm. a bit more into management consulting. This is what I do today. Mm -hmm. And I love it. I love your analogy to a really specific and special flower that you don't just throw it into, you know, a pot with whatever soil. If it's something, I now have my fake orchid that I have in my <laughs> picture there. Um, oh, I yeah. actually, I actually tried an orchid. <laughs> I kept it alive for a very short period of time. And then as people said, Hey, it may look dead and it, but it's probably not dead. I found out that sometimes when it looks dead, it's really dead. <laughs> <laughs> 
it relates to work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hmm, I don't think that employee is really engaged. Nope, that employee has been looking for another job on company time. Yeah. <laughs> So when you got into this specifically, and I love the concept, you know, you're like, why are great ideas not coming to fruition? And, you know, when you have creative people or you have a creative opportunity and you've got all this room for innovation and creativity, but things never happen to, you know, go to completion or maybe even start, that can be very demotivating for people. Yeah, it is. And I think, um, well, there's, as we all know, so many factors to it. I think from my perspective and growing up through the dot-com era as sort of a, what they call a digital native and you know knowing code, knowing design, knowing how to make things, that's just one side to it. And that has quite become a commodity. But the interesting aspect is that this has been affecting people, right? So the people aspect of that is the more complex aspect, not just the people who, the customers who are affected by your products and services, but in particular, and that's what I'm focused on, the teams who create things and the leaders who enable those teams, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there's a really interesting thing I tumbled about when I wrote my book, The Wicked Company, which, um, you know, I had looked at this complexity of creating these things and all the challenges this has for many years. And then eventually I came sort of full circle back into my German roots and found the idea of the wicked problem, which is what a professor back in Heidelberg found out back in the 60s when they try to solve problems around um, urban planning. Mm. And uh, they said the usual engineering and science approach just doesn't work there because the environment is too volatile. Essentially, a city is mainly full of people. It might be full of buildings, but that's actually less significant. So the engineering aspect actually doesn't make the difference. It's the people who start using things differently, react to it differently. So the second you put your solution there, people will adopt to it. Right. Uh, whereas in comparison, so-called tame pr uh, problems, you have like building a bridge, right? You build a bridge, the bridge never needs to change because the purpose is always the same and you just drive over it and, and, and uh, purpose done. It's a controlled environment. Whereas most of today's problems in social media services and products around people keep evolving because the people keep reacting to it. Mm -hmm. So this volatility is the tricky aspect. And uh, so I found this and then I looked back at how organizations function and realized that this is probably one of the main reasons why a lot of IT investment and investment in change and transformation just doesn't work because they're just looking at the rigid little aspects. You know, if you could fix it like that, then in theory, 5 million spent on IT or tools at one company would have exactly the same effect. And we all know that can possibly be true and we know it isn't. Right? right. So the difference is the people, right? People adopt it differently. Uh, we know that just because a tool has features doesn't mean everyone using the features. There's tons of mm -hmm. statistics on that. And then the big part is a lot of things we can't quite really measure. We only see the effects of which is a lot of the emotional aspects around technology, behavior and change. Mm -hmm. So there are obviously some really interesting new practices out there like service design and behavioral science, which start looking at those aspects as really major drivers for anything from sales to customer actions to how team build and thrive. And then we have um, research uh, from such giants like Google, um, Project, Project Aristotle, which looks at team dynamics and say, well, which, which ones are our best teams? Are the ones with the smartest people or the best tools? Well, neither. It's actually the people who communicate best, who listen best, mm -hmm. and so on. So all of that 
is high is highly complex language is highly complex but those are the things that seem to matter for great performance for people being happy for great work culture and therefore for ideas to thrive otherwise the other things just kill things off so yeah. i found that to be a significant factor and then started to really look at the history of organizations and then realize that we've been quite focused on technology way too much as a, as a civil and we keep doing it you know yeah. latest to look it's at gonna what, be a solution just throw more tech at it everything will be fine yeah anything from iot to blockchain and you know the recent trend like was it nfts and mm -hmm. these things you know it's like everyone's like oh that's it that's it that's it now you just just jump at it and yes. you're gonna be fine and i think in the least when we then look at the research of change and transformation projects and 70 percent failure rate to deliver business value or proposed value uh, then we know it's not working. Um, so it's, it's, it's nearly an industry in crisis. And the crisis is there because I think both leadership and people themselves have been organizationally trained not to look at those aspects. It, yeah. It's often not quite measured. And then the typical adage of, uh, you know, uh, what you don't measure doesn't count. So you don't focus on it and you don't <laughs> change it. Um, and, and sometimes and what you do measure doesn't count. I mean, I think about this yeah. whole, you know, in the US, we've had this whole thing on, on um, net promoter score, you know, and what your NPS yeah. is. And I'm like, if that means nothing, you ask somebody a yes or no question, will they refer people or not? And you're basing whether or not you're a good business on one question. That's not telling you anything. So yeah, we're either thinking it's a solution or, or we're, we're dependent on something that really has no value. Exactly. And I think that's you, 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 you hit it on the nail there saying, you know, it's a yes or no, it's a black or white. And it's an odd thing. Most people know the world isn't black and white. It's more like right. gray and different aspects or colorful in all sorts of colors. And uh, oddly, organizations often don't seem to recognize that there is a bigger move now and probably you know that through sales and other aspects where we now know that actually the emotions are driving this way more than the logical perception of I make a, a informed decision on my sales or so. And, you know, and, and that all goes back to game three theory and all these things that has been trickling into economics and basically has been helped shape these organizations that seemingly run on these um, uh, quantitative numbers. But we know they're wrong. Every, a lot of this stuff has been debunked, but still here. And that's sort of the thing we need to work on. I think that's the thing to starting to recognize both on the leadership level and the team level in order for us to recognize each other and the roles we play and how we can enable each other better. Yeah, and I I absolutely agree with you on so many levels. Um, and I just want to go back real quick because I think it's such a great analogy is the concept of the bridge. You know, when you build a bridge because you have to span, you know, a, a chasm, a waterway or whatever, and you build a bridge. Now, at some point in time, you, people aren't going to sit there and say, you know what, I don't like the color of the bridge, so I'm not going to drive over it. You know, now they might say, I don't like how traffic backs up on that bridge, you know, so maybe I'm going to avoid that bridge, which tells us something there's fundamentally wrong with, you know, how traffic flow or whatever happens on the bridge. But no, people aren't sitting there saying, well, you know, I'm only going to drive partway on the bridge and then I'm going to turn around and go back. But we, we use so many, we put so much um, stock in upgrading our programs and our technologies and let's add this software because it'll make things run smoother and yet when and it could they can um but they don't always they often don't and at the end of the day you've got individual users making decisions 
on, you know, what they like and don't like, and aren't necessarily telling the business until we realize why did we just invest all this much money and it, we're not doing anything with it. And it's not delivering any more tangible results or, or a better work ethic or a better work product, but we still fail to communicate with our team in the process. I had, um, I'm just going to tell a quick story. I had a really interesting experience is about, I don't know, eight, nine years ago with a company where I was helping, I was part of the senior leadership team and we were bringing like 50 different companies under one roof. And we were all in the hearing aid industry and we had had this software developed just for us. So we were moving everybody off of their CRMs, you know, all of these other 50, you know, uh, CRMs to one new one. No one had tested it live in the field. And I got, and I, we were changing, you know, the dynamics of the, you know, who was responsible for what part of the business. And I ended up on day one, when that software went live, that was my first day with that portion of the, the company that got the software. And I had like 19 people quit within the first three weeks. I mean, I was, wow. it was just decimated. I had people yelling at me the whole time. I hadn't even put my fingers on the software, you know, yeah. and it was, one of those things that I remember going, okay, wait, what happened? This is supposed to make life easier and it doesn't. But what we completely failed to do was ask if everybody wanted it, <laughs> wanted it the way it was done yeah. and get any input from the people who actually needed to use it before we put it live. Oh, it's so wrong. <laughs> I think they canned that a, a little while after I left that company. <laughs> so that's a, you know, that's a very common story. And I've seen this a lot and the worst there sometimes is the fact that you know if millions have been invested companies don't want to shut it down because they're mm -hmm. waiting for the to get their money back on it and it will yeah. basically never happen right yeah. so it actually would be brave braver to just shut it down and, and and reassess it so the other thing that really there you know the service designer and design thinker in me screams there because I look at I look at today's world and it's never been easier and cheaper to go out and talk to the customer, right? Yeah. Or talk to your colleagues who you're developing this thing for and your process, whatever it is. So there's no excuse anymore for organizations not to do this. Um, yeah, however, often again, the echo of the past of the hierarchy is strong and therefore it still happens. And that's one of these things we really have to let go. Um, and that naturally then moves us into uh, a shift of governance and decision making mm -hmm. and who we ask and who is the smart person in the room well actually no one anymore right these things are so complex that cross-disciplinary teams have been proven to do to, de-risk to, to that a lot why well because they look at these things from six sides not just from two and mm -hmm. therefore they see things not everyone sees and they therefore if they listen to raise their hand sorry but what about this or what, what, but if that's, but if someone's sitting there, isn't that too far away or isn't that, doesn't that not work? And then these things come out. And if you have those kind of teams, you're golden because these things will be raised earlier. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I remember as well, um, we worked on a big project, a transformation for a telco where they bought for a year, but in the first three months we had three pilots there and there was an assumption of, that the versioning software, so the software to upload code to the cloud and manage 
all the versions of it across 4,000 developers needed updates. So they used about, um, I think, two or three different products. And it was a simple, seemingly simple approach to say, hey, we just test the three products, whatever is cheaper, better, have better features. Gonna pick that one across the board and we'll save tons of money. That doesn't seem simple to me at all, but I, I, I hear what you're saying, but yeah. Well, the, you know, the softwares are sort of, you can get an idea and you have an, you know, an, an, uh, an engineering kind of scope of like, these are the features, these are the things I've done. There's certain principles of how you deal with code and it's sort of more straightforward than not. Uh, it's definitely simpler than a whole CRM system, for example. Um, however, um, that was the assumption. We came in there to introduce a bit more customer research and say, well, can we actually test this with who's going to be using this? And they were like, oh, why? It's simple. It's just comparing the products, right? It's like, um, sure, but give us two weeks. And if we come back and that's still true, sure, let's go. Uh, mm -hmm. And otherwise, maybe we might have another thought on this, right? So we went out and had a look. And because the company had um, a lot of offices in Europe, and a lot of developers in India, as, as many do over in mm -hmm. Europe, um, they realized two things. One is that, um, so India was mainly using one product and Europe was mainly using one of the other products, mm -hmm. but there was no overlap in project, meaning none of the code was being used by two different products because the projects either set in India completely or completely in Europe. I so there wasn't any need at all to, 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 to change the product. The other thing was also that in particular in India, people would come out straight of college with one product that they already knew and are familiar with and could work with. So retraining thousands of people there would have been an immense cost for no benefit whatsoever. Right, lost productivity, but, yeah, frustration, yeah. time exactly. loss, yeah, absolutely. So instead of spending millions in training just to cookie cutter a product, that everyone uses, that everyone's already fine with because they have a solution for it, uh, you know, was completely ridiculous. So that came out. And on top of that, what came out was there was a scanning mechanism uh, missing to look for certain gaps and holes in some of the open source software. So we found that where people said, actually, you know, that's all fine, but this thing here, we got to be careful with. And if you want to, can that thing do that? I was like, well, it can't, but actually if that's a problem, there's a massive risk here that something goes wrong with the software. Right. So we ended up showing that the original assumption was totally wrong, saved millions in wrong spend, and then pivoted this around to building a scanning service to cover these holes and mm -hmm. had a risk miti mitigation in the millions. So just mm -hmm. by spending two weeks on that and asking questions saying why, and talking to people in a very simple, cheap and quick way, yep. this was all achieved. And it was obviously the bigger the company is, the bigger the, those, those opportunities are. And that's just mm -hmm. one of the examples where you just go out, you talk to a few people and it's interesting. You, oddly enough, you always find some nuggets. There's always something there that no one seemingly has asked before. And mm -hmm. it's not just to make things better for people, but there's often things totally being missed that have been broken for a long time. And often you can save companies millions with these things. So yeah, yeah. there's no excuse anymore. And it's, it's, it's surprisingly easy to do if you let people do their job like that. 
Right. And ask the questions. I mean, that's the whole basis of my, my leadership book, which is called Tell Me More, because it's about just asking the simple question until you know all, all the pieces of information that are there to be known. And then you can decide what to do with them. You know, some you leave, some you make, dis, you know, other decisions on, some you change radically, but without all those pieces, we're still operating on assumptions and assumptions yeah. get us into trouble. Exactly. And the, um, well, as much as, so one of the principles I like to say when we go into projects, like treat everything as an assumption. You might think you know something, and definitely the last year in particular. And I would normally argue there's been 20 years of digital, and I think there's a lot of assumptions there because people never looked properly at it to start with. But since last year, we have a completely new map, and yeah. everyone's exploring this new map. So throw your old map away. There will be yeah. some learnings and things you'll know you can reapply. Others, look at it again. And that's the thing I was quite struck by, and we did some survey research on when when the whole working from home first started to kick in and people started to already get very, very stressed. And uh, so I did a survey around and people, so it was a mix between, actually I'm quite happy at home. I don't wanna see everyone every day. So mm. I can work a bit more. But one of the bigger parts were no one ever checked or asked what times I'm actually available. Cause now I have, I'm at home, I have kids at home. It's different dynamics. My partner's at home as well. We only have one office. How do you manage that? I wanna have a particular set of time that I can be on Zoom and others where I want to work. No one ever went and said, hey, by the way, how does your day look like? What's your preferred time? And within the team, you would actually find the best slot, stick to it, and everyone would be a bit more relaxed, can focus yes. on it or not. No, you, everyone just got wildly bombarded with these things. A lot of people got really drained. A lot of people complained in the survey that bosses wouldn't recognize and respect the, 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 the five o'clock after office hours and would still email and, and call and try to put Zooms in and whatnot. So, and it's a simple thing to do. It's like, hang on a second, you're not here anymore. You're in a completely different context. What has, tell me what's changed and yeah. tell me how it works, right? And a lot yeah. of people never even did that. So they just kept going even so everyone was sitting in a completely different context. That was fascinating yeah. to see. And that. it's, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, my neighbor is, a, um, is an attorney for a pharmaceutical company. And she's constantly like her day, she can't wait till they go back to the office because then at least there's, you know, there are set parameters. And I, just, I was talking to her the other day and she said, I don't have a break, period. And I said, you, you know, are you, how are you going to take better care to like protect your calendar? She said, you don't understand. I have, I have blocked out lunch every day. People override my calendar and there's no way because no matter what I've done, I can't, I can't get them to respect it. And what I think is really going to be interesting, and we'll, we're going to take a quick break here from here from our sponsor here just in a second. But what I think is really interesting is as we go back, a lot of people are going to be going back into a hybrid method, which I actually think has great benefit. I think there's a lot more landmines in there that follow just on that suit, because if we weren't respecting people's boundaries when they, when everyone was home, how are you going to respect boundaries when half your office isn't? on Mondays and Wednesdays, the other half is at home. And then they flip it on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You've got to have some ground rules because if you don't have ground rules, then somebody's going to always be looked at like they're not contributing, feel like they're not being contributed to, you know, feel like they're being overrun. And, and we're going to, I think we're going to head uh, to some very, my prediction is we're going to see people starting a lot of job uh, hopping now because if you're not happy in this one situation and you don't know how to ask for it there, 
you're going to go somewhere else and ask for it as a part of your bargaining chip. And that's where I think we're, you know, we have this really interesting time that we're going into. So I'll be looking forward to those thoughts and more. We're going to take a quick break, Marcus. We'll hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back. Imagine starting a long journey without a map or even a clear idea of the obstacles ahead. That's exactly what it's like for entrepreneurs who start companies with a lot of passion, but without the financial expertise to grow and scale their businesses and create long-term wealth for their families. Find a financial advisor who can help you map a better journey. Wayne Titus shows you how in his book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Financial Well-Being. With the right advisor at your side, you'll have the freedom to focus on what really matters to you. Get the Entrepreneur's Guide to Financial Well-Being at Amazon.com and in the virtual bookstore on the Shock Your Potential app. And we are back with Marcus Kirsch. And I love your perspective on this. I especially love the fact that, you know, you spent time actually surveying people and asking them, how's this working and how's it not? And a lot of times, especially with consultants, you can ask those questions. You can get responses that are more honest than when people do that within, you know, their own uh, organizations. But, you know, moving forward, I'm really trying to help, you know, arm people with this sense of you, we can go into this next level of the world, you know, partial remote, partial hybrid, whatever it is. Um, leadership opportunity, as well as a worker's opportunity. And you can be very successful, but it's going to take a lot. And, you know, so what do you think are some of the, the strengths or the tips that people should be really considering to keep not only, you know, keep themselves a good, strong leader, but really evolve in this changing dynamic and be great leaders for the future? So I think maybe there's two things that I found, and one in particular with change and transformation, because it's normally where things are a bit more crazier when things move about. Uh, there's a lot more uncertainty there. So, um, you know, having worked in change transformation before COVID, I maybe was a little bit more used to it, a little bit more prepared to it, just mm -hmm. a little. And uh, essentially, um, communicating is just the biggest piece there. Um, I always like to say 50% of a successful transformation is about communicating. It's communicating mm -hmm. clarity, uh, it's admitting that you don't know everything, um, mm -hmm. but being being hopefully clear enough with a vision or setting it out in a way that you can shape the vision with the people that work for you as a leader. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's 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 sort of an odd thing to look back at the last twenty years, and you know, twenty years back, having leaders that tend to be at a higher age and less familiar with digital than the younger crowd who who, who grew into it. Mm -hmm. There was less literacy there, digital one, and maybe that has improved, but digital has evolved exponentially. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're now going into NFTs and blockchain and all of that, just the repercussions of what it means for, especially blockchain and my, my podcast co-host, Troy Norcross, who's a blockchain specialist, he would say, you know, that alone is actually a thing that completely throws over how you either... How you, how you deal with your own data, how much you own it. Because the benefit of blockchain is that multiple companies who are potentially competitors actually throw everything together, which previously you wouldn't have ever considered because it's way too dangerous because mm -hmm. of competitiveness and so on. But today, this is actually a benefit, right? And you can set yourself apart from everybody else. But the partnership idea has totally changed to right. benefit from those particular technologies just the way they work. 
And that's one of those things that's really hard to get into. I remember working when I was over at Nationwide or HSBC, um, you know, like everywhere else or in some other countries, we had open banking and open banking builds upon the same idea where a more freer exchange of data between, between all the bank systems. And there's rather more benefits in that to implement it and align it across different organizations than actually to hold back and it's like oh we're not doing it because we're exposing ourselves that people steal our customers mm -hmm. but it's actually a big customer value that customers might more likely come to you if you actually have it so right. this conversation is often quite tricky um, and i think therefore for leaders it's quite important to understand that they really don't have the answers that the people who work for them should more heavily contribute which directly then pushes a different model of governance right so, um, and what plays heavily into that is that, and again, there's statistics there and there's plenty of research there that, that behavioral science gives us a lot is saying everyone's biased, right? So leadership has a particular bias on the way it looks at things and also has a strong business bias. If you, if you sit closer to the customer, you have more of a customer bias, right? Because you see the values you're creating very differently. And I think as a company, you can only thrive if you throw that together equally, right? Mm -hmm. So as a leadership, you step back and say, business is important, but if you don't have customer, you're not gonna be business. So we have to acknowledge the customer value to some level, probably more than you sometimes say, but bring mm -hmm. that in more. So how do we connect that? So how do we connect the insights from this is the best thing for the business. This is the best thing for the customer. Where's the healthy middle ground to really grow? Mm -hmm. right? Because that's going to set us apart to the competition. If we deal with that better, we'll thrive. Yeah. So, you know, acknowledging that you're biased and actually uh, having your teams being able to question what priority you set on certain business values or, or how to achieve them. It doesn't mean that um, service designers hear this all the time. It's like, oh, we, we love the customer and we're focused on creating customer value. Then the business goes, yeah, but where's, where's, where's our profit margin here, you know? And right. um, service designers don't often think like that. However, it's actually there. It's just the language is missing. And the second you bring these languages more together, which is one of the things I'm trying with, you know, when I say I'm doing team ops and I'm doing change and transformation is to bring these values closer together so they can communicate to each other. Because if they can't communicate, then you can compare and you can have a conversation, you can make a decision, right? And this is where you want to more get to where the top, let's say the top and the bottom of the teams and leadership, um, and maybe even to some extent, including the customer really in the process need to come closer together. And we know that the companies or brands and the customers have already moved together. Oddly enough, I often find that the teams in the organization and leadership haven't moved much together. Right, exactly. And I find it a bit odd, right? So, and uh, to, to bring another anecdote in there as well. So um, in some of the projects I um, introduced um, DVF, desirability, viability, and feasibility as a model to very simply prioritize before you go into a more detailed business case and you can then you can do that you can train teams quite quickly into that it's a very simple process um, idea has been using a lot for design and i managed to put this into other companies and other contexts and it works really well and i had a conversation with a client of mine and i said well how tell me how in this organization you actually count things that matter to you on the board mm. and he came up with these five things and I said, well, that looks pretty close to DVF. All you have is like those two, you split into two. You, you, you split people and technology into what in, in, in uh, DVF is 
feasibility. So basically capabilities, how, how easy can we do this? Well, we need people in tech for this. What do we have there? If you bring this together, it's exactly the same model. So oddly enough, they were talking on the board level, mm-hmm. exactly the same language as in the teams. Yeah. And that means if you actually realize that you can have teams who gather insights on the ground with the customer, have conversations with the, on the, with the board level, if you want to, or the board level can read what's been going on and been found out out there, which is a major benefit of knowledge transfer, right? And a lot mm-hmm. of companies are not set up like that because there's a little difference in, in, in language and bringing that language together makes a huge difference for the organization. Because then yeah. when, you're, when, you're, when you're down there in the team, you actually understand more of what the business is talking about. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of research in there as well. There are a lot of people in teams don't know what leadership actually wants to create. And leadership understands what's going on on the, on the floor a lot. And that's one of those things that I think we just need a little bit extra nudge and a bit of extra different kind of language to bring together. And mm-hmm. organizations could function very differently. Well, and you're right. Different. I mean, I think that in so many companies you do, you see that gap because you may be speaking the same concepts, but not the, or the same overall language, the, the overall core language, um, but you're not speaking the same dialect, you know? So you, you, exactly. the, the differences between the boardroom and the, and the on the floor, you know, can seem really great. And yet figuring out the way to have that dialogue to understand we're all trying to achieve the same thing, but sometimes the people in the C-suite um, and I've been accused of this before myself. Not, I didn't feel it was right, but I, you know, it helped me reflect on what message I was sending. Is that, you know, you don't understand what we're dealing with here, you know, on the front line. You, <laughs> you know, all you care about is the, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, line yeah. on the margin. And I'm like, no, I. Well, of course I care on that. That's, you know, that's how I'm measured. You know, that's how we. That's how you guys as a paycheck get a paycheck. That's how I get a paycheck. You know, that line has to be in the right spot for us to be a profitable company. That's important. But I hear you. If you think that I don't know what you're facing on the ground floor, that means that I need to spend some time on the ground floor with you. So you understand I do know. And uh, I, I think it was really funny. We had instigated, um, I worked for a long time in the hearing sector, hearing industry, and we um, implemented this new program about asking for referrals. And people were gave me so much pushback. You don't understand. You don't understand. You don't understand. And they kept saying that. And so I started going, it's almost like I did a whistle stop tour and I would go into clinics all over and I'm, you know, I'm a senior VP and I'm going in, you know, so I've got, you know, I'm going down to the front line. So there's two levels of managers, you know, between me and them and I'm walking in and I'm seeing somebody in the waiting room going, Marcus, hi, hey, have you heard, you know, do you, and I'd go do the whole spiel, you know, I'd show them how to do the, uh, the referral program and I would get names and here's, you know, the frontline workers, their manager and their manager going, well, oh crap, I guess I have no, (laughs) I guess I have to do it. If she can do it and she did it without a problem, maybe she not only does know what she's talking about, but she is in touch with us. And maybe I need to recognize what's holding me back. But I had to do the same thing. I'm like, if, if you think there's a gap, then there's a gap. Whether I believe there's a gap or not, there is, if one of us feels that way. So our goal is to, to bridge that gap and make sure that we're all on the same team. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, language uh, and silos create a lot of language. And then you have the practices of different ones, you know, and all of yes. that together. I've spent hours and hours in a lot of projects just getting the names of certain things right you know what we're we yeah. calling an artifact what we're we calling a meeting what we this and this and this and hours spent and um that's something i'm quite keen on 
you know, changing or influencing a bit. And it's one of the reasons why in my book, I try to explain, you know, write in the most simple of possible terms, because I don't like, I'm not married to being a service designer or developer or no. a strategic consultant, whatever, and all these models that are there. I like simple, practical things. Um, but, it, but, but in the backdrop of, you know, and that maybe goes back to be, be, being an artist to, to enjoy what people can create, what people can do. And they can do it when they can communicate best together. And uh, it's, it's, and, and you hear this good stuff, what you just said, you know, in some of the other good podcasts. So there's some really great CEOs around. I think it was one of the episodes of uh, General McChrystal. He has a, mm, a business, business podcast. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, and he was uh, interviewing one of the CEOs who just said, like, yeah, I go to my shops. I go to my, you know, to the, to the coffee shops and check. I think it might've been of Starbucks or Costa or something. It's like, I go and check with, in with people, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I've done the same with, uh, when I worked in advertising, I dragged creative teams out into the shops and worked on yeah. things like Max Factor, for example, you know, or we worked on things like um, Ferrin on Bio, which is a, a washing washing liquid for 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 infant clothes. And mm -hmm. it was before my daughter was born, so I had no idea what it is to be a parent and to to care about a little one and so we went and just did interviews with with five five moms who had kids that were no older than one year old and all of that what that all steered up the worries they have and the time pressure they have over the day getting used to this new routine it's like when do you actually have time to worry about a brand or listen to anything that's there what do you actually need and that totally shifted yeah. the way we created ideas around what we could do in order in order for moms to feel better or help them out and do things you know uh, mm -hmm. and it all it needs is just to go and talk to people and it's doable I mean I understand there's industries like when you Klaxo Smith Klein was very interesting we worked with uh, on HIV drugs and awareness and home testing and that was super interesting because there's a lot of restrictions of what you can do and how you can approach people for obvious mm -hmm. reasons right and it's even trickier because um there's still a massive stigma on it to be positive and so that was a research challenge but those things are rare those things are rare in most cases you can actually do that and at the same time if you actually care and you want to make things better for people they're more than welcome so even there we had through proxy or through friends, we managed to get interviews, we managed to get people to answer questions to us, um, you know, under anonymity and whatnot. But we got really, really raw data from them that was so beneficial. And, and, and it, it really didn't cost much. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big thing. And I like to go back to the, the, the principles of project management and you look especially at, you know, construction and other really complex ones where, they, they react by chaos theory. So the first few steps are exponentially more important than anything after, because anything after increases exponentially in cost if you get it wrong on the first few. Right. So this kind of research, research and checking a little bit more into the why for just a little bit makes significant difference. And mm -hmm. so it's a bit odd sometimes to see why companies are not doing it, but at the same time, I can recognize that because historically, Ah, we just go and we produce a new solution. We put a new tool in. That's a new solution. It's easy. It's quick. It's cheaper not to think, yeah. and that makes a difference. And unfortunately, the data is against kind of approaches. So I hope that will slowly change. Yeah, I love it. God, we could talk about this forever. It's fascinating. I love yeah. it. And two things. I know we're going to have all your contact information on the show notes. But in case somebody wants to look you up right now, what's the best way for them to find you? So you can find me on LinkedIn. 
or you can find me or whatever I do on uh, thewickedcompany.com. Mm-hmm. And the podcast is The Wicked Podcast. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcast and a few other smaller ones. And we're on YouTube as well. So we're doing videos as well. Yay. Um, yeah. So all there, just come and say hello. Now, before I ask you for your last words of wisdom or pearls of advice, I'm assuming that all those are skateboards behind you. They are indeed. So I'm, I'm an old aging skater with aching <laughs> joints. Um, yeah, so I used to skate back in the 90s. And so I ended up a lot through COVID actually to buy myself some, some old men. They do a lot of reissues now of the old boards. So I treated myself to some and so I can look at that here and there and smile and wonder if I could have been a, a pro skater or not. Probably not. You know what? You'd still have aching joints (laughs) and they'd probably ache worse. (laughs) Proudly, proudly aching. (laughs) I love it. Well, before we go, what are your last words of wisdom or pearls of advice for my listeners and viewers? Yeah, I had to think about that and I'm probably not smart enough, but I think one of the things I want to bring across, especially after a year like this, uh, don't glorify busy, right? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about taking the time to step back and ask why, that's slowing down, right? And the other thing is also that I just found a lot of organization trying to really double down. So, you know, following a lot of people and then expecting the people that are left to do twice as much work. Mm-hmm. And again, research just shows that you're not just burning out quicker, but you're making more mistakes. So the risk organizations are taking on by just overproducing. Uh, in my case, not just in my case, but in my case, uh, in terms of experience, it's just, um, it, 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 it's dangerous. It's rich, it's really, really dangerous. And um, therefore, you know, just don't glorify busy, give people enough time, um, give people the opportunity to do things between nine to five and just scrap those overtimes. Because in none of the studies has that shown to be actually produce more productivity. It just doesn't. You think it does, and the numbers might say that, but it's it's a big lie. And I think um, we'll we'll see the outcome sooner rather than later, if not in loss of productivity, then in a massive increase of, of mental health issues and people being just utterly, utterly burnt out. And it's, it doesn't help anyone. So I don't agree. glorify busy, please. I agree. Amen to that. Marcus, it has been great. You have been a fabulous guest. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you, Michael. It's been lovely. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Shock Your Potential podcast. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com, including details on Michael's two best-selling books. Tell me more, how to ask the right questions and get the most out of your employees, and sales mixology, why the most potent sales and customer experiences follow a recipe for success. Make sure to check out our Shock Your Potential app, on-demand professional training resources to help you excel in your career. And as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like us today.